want to make a podcast, Spotify has got a platform that lets you make one super easily, distribute it everywhere, and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&As and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel so supported in the creation and distribution of my show. Spotify for Podcasters hosts masterclasses, office hours, and more to help creators develop and fine-tune their skills. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. But when I drank, I would become angry and, and irritable and all that stuff. And I went into um, treatment one day and I kept trying to look like I had it all together. I didn't want anybody to see that I was suffering. And so I went in and I was crying and what, what's going on? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like, are you sure? And I'm like, no, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm irritable, I'm frustrated, I don't understand what's going on. This is really, but what that led me to do was be vulnerable for the first time. Instead of putting that mask on and pretending like everything was okay, I had the ability to say, I'm terrified and I don't know. I don't know, I don't have an answer, but I'm here and I just need help and I and I don't know what to do. Can some, you know, Can someone help me? And so putting out my hand to ask others for help was so huge and important for me in starting to heal and feel better. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to, we're back to the show. Thank you so much for clicking on this episode. My name is Lily, I'm your host. And today I have a very, very special guest for you. This is probably one of the coolest episodes. I feel like anytime I have a guest, I'm like, this is the coolest episode. But in all seriousness, Hilary Phelps is one of the coolest people I've ever met. I had the opportunity back in the fall to work with her. We were on a panel together and I'm also working with her in a way, like, kind of on a project that will be I'll tell you guys more in the future um but I've gotten to know her pretty well through various projects that we've worked on and I've always wanted to have her on the podcast Hillary is a perfect example of finding power in vulnerability at 29 Hillary checked herself into rehab for a substance use disorder it wasn't about putting down the drink but rather changing people places and things in her life that caused her to use it in the first place Hillary kept her sobriety quiet until she recently celebrated 15 years of sobriety, well actually 16 this past year, but when she celebrated her 15th year, she actually made her story about sobriety public. It was picked up by a couple local than national news outlets, and since then, Hillary has been using her story as a catalyst for change in so many people's lives. Hillary is a speaker, an addiction recovery advocate, and holistic wellness coach. Her mission and purpose is to help other women find their voice and heal from anything that is holding them back from finding their purpose. Her story is incredible and really just proves how important it is to share your story because you never know who it might touch. Hillary Phelps, welcome to 8020. I guess a quick little catch up. How have you been? What have you been up to lately? Good. I'm, um, oh my gosh, quick catch up. I know. I'm like, when did I see you? I want to say it was like, yeah, almost. I think it was the fall. Oh my gosh. So since the fall, I, 
I've really, I think, stepped up with the speaking and done a lot more in the recovery space, the addiction advocacy, which has been really exciting, a lot more speaking and just trying to spread the message of hope that, you know, anybody who is in the throes of addiction or in mental health can heal. So that's been really powerful and feels very purposeful, which, you know, is also funny or ironic because at 45, you know, when I was 20, I thought I'd have my life together at 45. I, you know, had this like, oh yeah, I'd be this and that. And now at 45, I'm completely changing the landscape of what I do for a profession, but it feels more purpose-driven and they really, really love that. Was it January that um, the Today Show like ran the article about your sobriety journey and all that stuff? Is that when you really felt like your speaking kind of kicked it up a notch kind of thing? Yes. You know, and it's only been a year. I started speaking out about my recovery at 15 years sober because I kept it kind of quiet because I still felt like I, I still had shame around it, I think. And I had to work through that. And what I realized was like, if I still felt shame, can I, you know, I wanted to put myself in the shoes of someone that had one month or one year, you know, a woman that was still kind of really quiet about it. And if she felt that way. So if I um, was feeling that way, I wanted to be able to lend my voice to people and say like, this isn't shameful. It's, it's okay you know, together we can recover and also lend voice. I know, you know, um, Jessica, our friend, Jessica Buchanan. Yes, yeah. And yeah. she has, you know, the really beautiful, it's like a recover in the, you know, out loud. So those um, recovering in silence can, can continue to heal. I think once the today show, yes. Like once the today, like com picked it up and then people magazine did a piece and then um, daily mail picked it up as well. And that felt like it kind of, yeah, solidified that my voice in the space um, of addiction recovery. Jess does a really good job of kind of, she's even helped me. It's really opened my eyes because telling your story, I think, you know, it's like you live your story. And then the minute that you can start telling your story, you learn more about yourself and your story, and then you're actually helping others. So it's like all this, you know, shit that you went through wasn't for nothing. You know, it's like, I don't know. I just, it's, being able to have that vulnerability, I think has helped heal me to some degree. I a hundred percent agree with that. I think, and for me, and I so recently led um, some women through a mindfulness journey and same thing, you know, at the end of it, we all opened up and kind of shared and everyone was like, I came in here with this, 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 all this stress. But when everybody walked in the door, they're like, hi, it's so good to be here. You know, but we wear these masks. Mm-hmm. Um, or I wear these ma- this mask sometimes to feel, you know, to, to look like I have it all together. Cause it's like, well, if I look like I have it together on the outside, then, you know, people are going to think I'm doing great. And, but you're right. Like the vulnerability is where we connect and that's where the community happens and the healing happens. And um, I think there's such a powerful voice in that vulnerability and authenticity. Take me back a little bit to your upbringing, your childhood. What were what were you like as a kid? So as a little girl, I was, um, which is funny because I feel like it's kind of come full circle now, but um, I was super curious. I loved information. I loved learning. I loved nature. Um, my parents bought land. They, we had, you know, five acres in the woods. And so my brother, my sister, and I grew up in nature and they built their dream home on this, on this property. And we got to play in the stream and my sister and I caught crayfish and we rode our bikes. And it was really, it was a really beautiful childhood of just exploration. I got straight A's. I was a really, I was a rule follower and I was a really good swimmer. So I started swimming when I was seven. Um, so I got straight A's through seventh grade and I still remember I got to be in history and I went to the teacher and I was like, can we please change this? Like, I will do anything. Like I was really, but I was like, please. And then, you know, I started swimming when I was seven and 
uh, I went to my mom and I was like, I want the big trophy because I got the third place trophy at the championship meet and all I wanted was to be the best. And so my mom said, you know, well, those most of the kids that get those trophies are year round swimmers because we were summer swimmers at the time. I was like, fine, sign me up. Like, I'll do anything. Like, I just want to be the best. And so that mindset has always been kind of how I lived my life. I just wanted to be the best. You know, when I started drinking, that kind of went out the window. But <laughs> uh, but my childhood was, I mean, it was great. It was great. We spent a lot of time in the pool. We spent a lot of time in the ocean. So do you think swimming played a big role in kind of the trajectory of your life? hundred percent. I do. Um, Because I grew up like my mom's a teacher. My dad was a police officer. So we weren't, you know, we were pretty middle class. Swimming afforded me the ability. So I got a full scholarship to the University of Richmond, um, which was incredibly helpful for my education. But as far as swimming goes, it was great, like time management. It was great for structure. It was really good in goal setting, like all those things that later carried me out into like the work world and in today. It really set me up for that. Um, but I also just like the space of the water. So I'm a Pisces sun, Cancer moon, Scorpio rising. So I'm all water signs. And so water is like so comforting to me. So it also feels like a really safe space, like being in the water and being in the ocean. And so being a swimmer was also really great for my mental health because it just felt good. So, but I think as far as setting me up for success in life, like, yes, a hundred percent. I totally agree with you. So I'm, I'm an Aries. Um, you actually got me into like human design and stuff. Um, but any, like, do you remember sitting there like at, at um, uh, my app. Was it? yes. Yeah. Yeah. The I diplomat. Love, love that. The dip, yeah. I'm a, um, yeah, the diplomat. What am, I'm a manifesting generator. Ooh, you're yeah. powerful. Thank you. <laughs> you can think and create. So you have both. So I'm a generator. So I do. So like someone yeah. else has to suggest, but you can suggest and do for yourself. Thanks to Babbel. I know what that means. Do you? This summer, I have been putting a priority on checking off a bucket list item which is to learn a new language. So I've been learning Spanish with Babbel and you can too. Because of Babbel, you can start speaking a new language in just three weeks. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are kind of just more like games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, and rooted in real-life situations delivered with conversation-based teaching. Like I said, being able to communicate in more than just English has been a top priority for me for a very long time, so I've dedicated about 15 to 20 minutes every single day this summer to logging on to Babbel and going through a lesson, and Babbel's personalized learning content, real-time feedback, tracking, and visualizations help to keep me focused and motivated. And 15 hours with Babbel is actually equivalent to one university semester, which I think is so crazy. With over 10 million subscriptions sold, Babbel is real language learning for real conversations. Here's a special limited time deal for 8020 listeners to get you started right now. Get 55% off of your Babbel subscription for our listeners only at babbel.com slash 8020. Again, get 55% off at babbel.com slash 8020. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash 8020. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Mosh Bar, the protein bar for your brain. 
I am such a foodie and if you guys know me, I love going for a little midday afternoon snack, but it's got to be good for me. It's got to be like good for my brain, help me to kind of roll into my afternoon, keep getting work done, keep doing my thing. And mosh bars have quickly become my favorite go-to afternoon snack. With six delicious flavors, each mosh bar includes 12 grams of protein and is made with ingredients that actually support your brain, like ashwanga, lion's mane, collagen, and omega-3s. Your brain is your number one tool, which is why mosh bars were mindfully formulated by some of the top neuroscientists and functional nutritionists to create a smart snack that keeps your brain and body fit, fueled, and feeling good. So like I said, I love to go for a mosh bar for an afternoon snack, but they're also the perfect bar to just toss in my bag for after the gym, or sometimes I'll toss one in my glove compartment of my car in case I get hungry. My favorite flavor would have to be the dark chocolate crunch. It's rich, it's velvety, it's a little almond buttery. Mosh also has a couple other flavors, including cookie dough crunch, blueberry almond crunch, peanut butter crunch, and others too. You guys have to check all of them out. Don't settle for a mediocre snack when you can nourish your body and mind with the fuel that it needs to be successful. So whether you're at the gym, on the go, or just living your best life, Mosh Protein Bars will keep your brain and body fit, fueled, and feeling good. Head to moshlife.com slash 8020 to save 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack, which includes all six mouthwatering flavors. M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash 8020. Because I'm a fire sign and I feel like everything is so fiery, the water is a good um, means of kind of calming me down. I was also swimmer growing up. And so mm-hmm. I feel the same way. It's such a, it, it definitely shaped who I am as a person. Um, and I also grew up with siblings that swam. That kind of like rivalry definitely also shaped who I am as a person. Um, mm-hmm. I would love to hear more about your experience, like swimming with your siblings. Yes. Are you the oldest? I'm the middle. You're in the middle. Okay. So my sister's the middle. So I'm the oldest and then my sister's two years younger. And then I have a brother that's seven and a half years younger. And so, so my sister was two years younger. I was the best. So I was the fastest swimmer in the country at age 11. Um, I had a national age group record. Um, I found those the other day, like the certificates that say, you know, yeah. And so that was, that was a huge part of my life. And then um, my sister started to beat me. My sister was third in the world at 14. She was a butterflyer. She went to trials in 96. Um, her best time would have won the Olympics in 96. Um, wow. But, you know, I mean, you know, as a swimmer, it's the human, human currency, you have a bad meet and it happens to be a big one. <laughs> There's, yeah. you know, it, it, it feels really hard. Um, and so my sister started to beat me when I was 12, 13, 14, probably 13 and 14. So she started to come up really quickly. And that felt really hard because she was my younger sister. And then she just flew past me. She surpassed me. Um, she was in the national B team, national A team. I mean, she was swimming in Paris when she was 14. She traveled the world and, um, and it was really hard. And because I didn't know my, my place anymore, you know, it's kind of like, I didn't know my place in the family because I was the best and I was the oldest. And then my sister kind of passed me and I was like, well, now what? Um, and so that felt really hard. And that's, not why or because or any, you know, but I started kind of experimenting with drugs and alcohol around that time. And it was like, well, I'm not, and it was also around the same time, like someone said, cause I was getting straight A's and I was the fastest swimmer in the country. And so, you know, someone's like, well, if you, 
swam harder and trained faster and studied more, you'd be better. And maybe for some people that would have been motivating, but for me, what I heard in my mind was like, what you're doing isn't good enough and you're not good enough the way you are. And so that kind of changed um, how I started to view the world and how I started to view things. And I was like, well, if I can't do this well, like what can I do well? And so th I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol and I had the gene of addiction um, in my family and in my body. And from that point, it was, I found what I was good at. <laughs> bouncing so my brother swimming was you know that was it didn't feel as hard because my sister was you know was two women competing and you know as a swimmer it's like the age group once you get to open you know yeah. you're 15 year olds swimming as 18 year olds and so that was it just felt embarrassing you know and my brother is a boy and so that wasn't as big of a deal because we weren't directly competing with one another yeah but my sister but she also really like she trained really hard and gave up everything for to be the best when she started beating me I was like okay I'm good and then my mom also said, she's like, you kind of had this thing where people beat you. You're like, you know, what? I'm going to let you win this time because you haven't won in a while. So why don't you go? She's like, I would just watch you do this and be like, what are you doing? That's like kind of nice <laughs> of you, though. <laughs> I'll let you win this one. <laughs> she was like, I was like, what? I was like, well, I don't know. That, that's kind of how I was, too. So I was, I mean, the clock doesn't lie. And so, you know, when you get to the point where yeah, you age up and your siblings age up. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, your younger siblings aren't swimming 25s anymore. They're in your age group and they're faster than you. It's hard. It's really, really hard. And I think, you know, your perspective of struggling to be the best is a really kind of a, uni a universal one, um, especially in, you know, people who are high achievers. And also struggling to be the best coupled with not being good enough. Mm. Right. Yeah. So I had those like two things going on. Like I wanted to be the best, but then I also didn't feel like I was good enough. And so it was that pendulum swing of, you know, best versus I'm actually not good at anything. And that's a really hard place to exist too, especially as like a teenage girl and for anybody, but as a teenage girl, it was really hard. Oh, especially as a teenager. I mean, you're so <laughs> susceptible to, you know, all this criticism and finding your place and girls are just mean to each other. And that's really, really hard. Yes. I mean, we're, there's a difference in our age, but, and I remember when I was in high school and middle school, it was really hard. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of teasing. There's a lot of just mean, like mean spirit. Um, and now I, I feel like it's even more challenging with social media and just, you know, portrayal of perfection that we can show mm -hmm. online. Yeah. I can't even imagine trying to be a middle schooler or a high schooler nowadays and just the, actually was reading somewhere, I, a country in Europe banned social media for anyone under 15. And you had right. to submit your ID to prove that you're 15 or older. And I'm just thinking even 15 seems so young. Like I think about who I was as a 15 year old and probably up until recently was I finally okay with who I am, <laughs> you know, like being on social media is just <laughs> such a, yeah. Right. I, I remember at 44, I was like, <laughs> I now feel grounded in who I am, like <laughs> physically, emotionally, like, yeah. So, but even my son now, like I've pulled my son off of, I'd created a whole personal page for just friends and family that I keep private proposed him, but I pulled him off of my more public, pro, you know, public profile because for the most part, um, because he would do things. He's like, are you going to post that on Instagram? I'm like, you're wow. six. No, I don't want you performing or thinking that um, likes are important or, you know, how you look or so I had to make a real shift in what I was doing even around him 
because he's not of the age where he has a phone or social media, but I don't want that to carry on, you know, when he is in his teenage years thinking that, you know, how you look is the most important thing or how many likes you're getting online is the most important thing or what people are saying about you. So thinking back to yourself as a teenager, and maybe we can move into your college years now too, did this kind of feeling of striving to be the best kind of just continue to follow you? No, I mean, once I started drinking, it kind of shut everything down, which is, you know, when I say I've come full circle, like I've come back to that inner child, like the little Hillary that I was back, you know, when I was seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, um, and 11, but it didn't, I kind of stopped caring. Like once I started pouring alcohol and drugs in my body, it kind of shut down that desire to be the best. And I just didn't, it just became apathetic and leaned more towards you know we talked about like the desire to be the best but also feeling like I was never good enough at anything and I started leaning more into that I'm not good at anything and I'm not good the way I am I'm not okay but I put on this huge um the mask right goes back to the mask of ego so I was kind of mean and I just you know to protect that really scared and sensitive person of feeling not good enough at anything and so the outward manifestation of that was negative and nasty and witchy and just unkind which is the antithesis of who I am at my core but I didn't know I just didn't know what else to do and so you know not feeling good enough but wanting to look like I had it all together kind of took on that persona of anger take us back to you know 20 something you prior to walking into that recovery center what would like a day in your life look like I mean, so after college, so I drank through college and, you know, which is, I think, pretty typical and and kind of scary because it was, you know, there's no, there's no one around anymore. You know, I wasn't living under my parents' roof, um, but it was even more challenging once I graduated from college because in college, I still had to check in. I still had to swim and I still had grades and I still had teachers. So I still had some accountability. But once I graduated and got out into the workforce, it was, you know, all bets are off and I could kind of explore that however I wanted. And so, but I worked, I mean, I lived in, um, it's called Laurel, Maryland. I think because you're, yeah, you're in Maryland. So mm-hmm. like we lived in Laurel and I'd take the train. There's a commuter train. Cause I worked in DC, but I was, you know, 22. So I was really young and, um, I didn't have the money to live at the time, you know, in an apartment in DC. So I'd take the train back and forth from Laurel and I'd get up in the morning and I'd take the train and I'd have my cup of coffee and I would drink the coffee on the way to the train and get to work. I'd work on, you know, work a day. And then um, I would get little traveler things of wine and pour them in my coffee cup for the drive home or the train ride home because everyone else is drinking on the commuter train. They give you these like little Dixie cups that you can drink out of wine from, you know, wine from. And I didn't want to drink like a lady. I wanted to drink to get drunk. And so I put it in a coffee cup and I would drink that all the way home. And so they have two little bottles and then I would get home and I would drink um, two full bottles of wine that night, either by myself or with you know, a boyfriend or I'd go out with friends. Um, and that was kind of my life. If I felt okay in the morning, I would get up and work out. Um, but a lot of my times really started focusing on addiction and drinking and, you know, the next drink. And most of the time I was, you know, hung over at work, which made it really hard to function. And, but I just kept going, you know, I had it together on the outside, but on the inside, I was just dying, you know, burning, say burning alive. It was just, it was emotionally hard. Was there kind of a pivotal moment for you where you knew that something had to change? So it always has. So in college, my college roommates, my senior year kind of staged an intervention and they were like, we don't like the way, you know, this isn't you. Like, this Mm -hmm. isn't the way you act totally different when you're drinking. 
you're a really mean person, you know, you're not doing the things like I just wasn't being a good person, meaning I was cheating on my boyfriend or I was fighting with women, you know, I would, it was just, it was not who I was when I wasn't drinking. And then once I started pouring alcohol in my body, it's like, you never knew who was going to show up. And so after college that continued and I was a blackout drinker, which meant every time I put alcohol in my body, I would forget what happened the night before. So I'd wake up the next morning and be like, oh, well, okay. And it was like flip phone era. So I don't even know if that, if you're, if you're around. <laughs> so it was like really early in the like cell phone days and um, Facebook was just getting started. And so there wasn't social media and there wasn't, you know, texting wasn't huge. And so I would wake up with scars or not scars with like bruises on my body or scrapes. And I was like, haha, that was kind of funny. And I would laugh it off and pretend like it was okay. But where it got really scary is I'd find myself in um, really dysfunctional relationships because I had such low self-esteem and lacked self-love, lacked self-acceptance. And so I found myself in relationships with um, men who were the same, you know? And so it was a really toxic relationship but I thought that if I had somebody then I was okay and so this one really tough relationship he had a father who had been in recovery who had just checked himself into rehab and he's like you have a problem and if you don't get help I'm telling your family because I could kind of hide it from people meaning um people just thought I drank too much or you know, my family would be like we don't like it when you drink and so I would just hide it but I could I had the ability to go home and shut the door and just drink by myself or um get really drunk with a couple of people where my family didn't see it. And that felt really shameful because I'd never wanted my family to look, I don't know, to, to worry about me or think poorly of me. And so, you know, a lot of people talk about these really um, low, low bottoms, meaning, you know, they're, I have a friend whose dad found him with a needle in his arm, you know, another friend that was living in a bullet ridden car, like all of these really sensational stories. And I say just, but mine was, I'd say a high bottom. I didn't, get arrested. I never lost a job. I never wrecked a car. Um, my family didn't disown me, you know, but I just felt like I was a shell of myself. And if anybody's been in that situation where you just feel so emotionally drained and empty, it's like I had nothing left. Um, and so when he said that, that was the catalyst that I needed to start looking into treatment. And I'd gone to, you know, 12 step meetings before and I'd check them out and they just, I just was, I didn't find what I was looking for. I didn't find the right meeting. Nothing really clicked with me and I needed accountability. And so I checked into it. It's called out, you know, an outpatient rehab center um, where I would work during the day. And then at, from 5.30 to 8.30 every night, I would go to the treatment center and we would have basically group therapy and check-in and we would um, have a course, which is funny because it's called feelings management where we would, were taught to manage our feelings because things like getting a parking ticket would lead me to drink two bottles of wine, which to some people is like, most people <laughs> like, it's not a big deal, pay the ticket, like don't do it next time. But those little tiny things would send me into a tailspin. And so I had to learn to appropriately live life and life's terms. And that um, hugely helpful, um, but also really challenging. So what were those like initial days, weeks, months of recovery like for you? Kind of walk us through what's what's going on. When I pour alcohol in my body, it was to numb. And so anything that was going on, you know, it's either if, it, if I was happy, I would drink to celebrate. If I was angry, I'd drink to numb. But no matter what was happening, it was anesthetizing my feelings, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
when I started drinking, um, I would stuff those feelings down. So if you visually think of like pouring a liquid on top of these feelings that are like building up in the center of your body and you just keep pushing them down and pushing them down and pushing them down. And then all of a sudden you take off that, that numbing agent, they have to come out somehow. So those first 30 days first were great because I'm sleeping, you know, alcohol, um, inhibits your ability to get really deep sleep and you know all those things so I started to feel really good my skin started to look better like all the physical stuff started coming but then all the anger came out and I was really and it kind of scared me because I was like where's this anger coming from I'm not an angry person but when I drank I would become you know angry and and irritable and all that stuff and so I go I went into um, treatment one day and I was like and I just, and I kept trying to look like I had it all together. I didn't want anybody to see that I was suffering. And so I went in and I was crying and it's like, what, what's going on? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like, are you sure? And I'm like, no, I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm irritable. I'm frustrated. I don't understand what's going on. This is really, but what that led me to do was be vulnerable for the first time. Instead of putting that mask on and pretending like everything was okay, I had the ability to say, I'm terrified and I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer, but I'm here and I just need help. And I, and I don't know what to do. Can someone, you know, can someone help me? And so putting out my hand to ask others for help was so huge and important for me and starting to heal and feel better. But those first 30 days, it's such a roller coaster. We talk about that pendulum, like think about a pendulum swing, like super high highs. And then you'd swing really quickly to super low lows. And it was just, and you never knew when it was coming. And thankfully, you know, now it's like after 16 years and um, a lot of habits and rituals and daily practices and all of the, the things that I've done to, you know, find my voice and spirituality, it, now it's more in the center. So the highs aren't super high, the lows aren't super low. And like, that's okay. Like being in that middle space is something I didn't like before because I thought it was boring or like it just being okay or fine or whatever. But now I like that middle space of like, I don't need super high highs because I don't want the super low lows. And so it's okay to find that, that just middle ground. Um, yeah, but those first 30 days were really tough. First, I say any, you know, anybody with the first, in the first 90 days, like are the strongest people I know in recovery because it's hard. And then when I came up on my first year, I was terrified because all of a sudden I was like, I've done this for a year. Now what? Wait a second. Is this my life now? Wait, I don't know if I want to do this for the rest of my life. Like this, okay. Like, you know, cause you have this goal and you met the goal and then now what? So those, I'd say the first 30, 60, and 90 days are, are just, it's a roller coaster. You guys already know, it is Healing Girl Summer. And I would have to say that one of the most influential and healing parts of my wellness journey was by far my time at the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. I enrolled in 2020. I was taking a little bit of time off college and it was really just a time in my life where I had so many questions about my body. I originally enrolled because I wanted to know more about nutrition and what food could do for my body, but I graduated with so much more. The program is the broadest and most comprehensive curriculum out there covering seven different categories, physical health, nutrition, mental and emotional health, primary food, spirituality, coaching, and business. And to me, my time at IAN was way more than just a certification. I used the tools I learned in the health coaching training program in my daily life, like how to go into everything with a beginner's mindset 
active listening skills and how to put primary foods first. If you know, you know, it's almost like I could embrace coaching as a lifestyle, not just as a job. Graduating from IIN was one of the driving forces behind this podcast. I originally started to talk about food, to talk about health coaching, and it has transformed into so much more. With teachers like Gabby Bernstein, Will Cole, and Melissa Wood, you will learn from the best of the best. If you've ever been interested in learning more about your mind and body on a whole new level, this program is for you. The next class begins on September 18th, so sign up today. Click the link in the show notes to check out a sample class or mention my name, Lily Rayco, during enrollment for a generous tuition discount. Again, click the link in the show notes to check out a sample class or mention my name, Lily Rayco, during enrollment for a generous tuition discount. I can't wait to watch you grow in your potential and unlock a life you love with IIN's health coaching training program. When you talk about the middle, that's so interesting that you brought that up. I just have to share. I talked about, and it'll go live uh, tomorrow, but this week's episode, I spend a hefty chunk of it talking about being in the middle space. And this is a completely different scenario, you know, my story and this, that, and the other thing, but it's so weird because I'm always like looking for like the next high, high or the next low, low. But once you finally kind of come to terms with like, it's okay to just kind of like, you know, yeah, you like, you know, you got to ride life's waves, but it's okay to just like chill in like the still water for a little bit. You know, you don't always have to be going for like the next big emotion, um, I feel like that's that's such an interesting concept. I love that you brought that up. Yeah, it's like excitement can still exist without being over the top. And it's changed the way that I live my life, like whether it's now like in relationships, um, like dating relationships or like things that I do on the weekend, like all of a sudden, like I'm okay saying like, I have no plans this weekend and that makes me really happy. And that's okay because before yeah. I wanted to be fun and I like I wanted to be something I wasn't instead of just embracing who I am. And who I am is great with, what people would define as boring. I'm fine going for a walk, like sleeping in, going for a walk, having coffee and reading on a Saturday. That's the best day. Like I don't have to have going out to a club and going out to a hot restaurant. But before I thought that would define me as like a cool person where now I'm like, okay with being yeah in that middle space of just peace. Like peace is more important yeah. to me now than the excitement. Right. Because with the excitement also can come the really, for me, can come those depressive moments. And so I've found it, yes, so beautiful to exist in that middle space. So you said once you came up on your first year, you were scared. And then yes. you continued to, you stayed sober. I mean, you're 16 years sober now, which is incredible. Right. Um, but you kept that journey very private for a very long time. Can you kind of touch on your reasoning behind that? Um, well, first, why you kept it private and then why you decided to to make it public? A couple of reasons. One, I was told um, by someone in my life that it was embarrassing and shameful and I should never talk about it because people would judge me or think differently about me. And at my core, at my ethos, all I want, I just want love and acceptance. Like I think a lot of humans want to find love and acceptance and that's what I wanted. And so for someone that was really important in my life to tell me that people would think differently of me was really hard because I, I didn't want that. And so for a long time, um, I kept that really quiet. There's also a part of me there was nobody, there's nobody talking there at the time. There weren't a lot of women either talking about it. And I, my opinion, a lot of women from what I've heard in my own experience carry a lot of shame when it comes to addiction, because people think it's a decision. They don't think it's a disease. They think that we, we pick it up and we do it and we're willingly doing it. It's not right. I mean, there's like a chemical balance. I mean, there's all, you know, all the science is behind it. It is not a choice. And so 
that shame, I still carried that shame, you know, that people would look at me and say like, oh my gosh, you're you, like you chose to do this to yourself. Why would you put yourself in those situations? Like when I was drinking and when I was in a blackout, I did things I wasn't proud of. I did things I would never do as a sober person. But also what I realized was with the numbers that were increasing after COVID among female women drinking around moms that are drinking and the online culture and all of these things that are so pervasive and present, like I didn't have the luxury to stay silent anymore when people are literally dying. And so, you know, the person in my life that, that had initially said it's shameful, um, you know, we're, we're no longer, we're parted ways. And so, um, you know, that voice wasn't in my ear anymore. And, and this was, you know, post COVID when drinking was increased, like drinking, the numbers had gone up. And then I saw the stats that two and a half men to every one woman seeks treatment for addiction um, and substance use disorder. But there was a 300% increase during the pandemic of women who turned to heavy drinking who had small kids at home so one what is it women so women are suffering in silence too what is it doing to our children and the next generation if I'm still feeling shame like put myself in the shoes of a woman that has one year and she's trying to do it on her own or she's trying to do it with you know a single mom with kids at home or she's still trying to hold it all together and carry the weight of the world on her shoulders and if I could say look I know what you're going through and you're not alone um this is how I felt and this is you know I just wanted, I literally wanted to change the life or, or hope to, you know, give hope to one person to, to, so they wouldn't feel alone. And so I shared my story for the first time a year ago on a friend's podcast. And I'd never, people had no, because I used my married name, people had no idea I went through a divorce. And so I changed back to my, my, my maiden name and I shared that I was so, I mean, not in that order, but then people were like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that you were a swimmer. One, oh my gosh, I had no idea, you know that you were struggling with addiction and oh my gosh, and you're sober. I just figured that you were healthy and didn't drink. And so all of a sudden, oh. but not a single person that I know of, I mean, maybe people are talking, but there was more support than anything else. And how sad is this going back to social? I was like, oh my gosh, what if I lose a hundred followers on Instagram because I share about my addiction literally. And that's so vapid and, and such a, I mean, it's real, right? I mean, being vulnerable, oh. like that's what I thought. And then what if I can save the life of one person? And that was literally my decision point in sharing. Um, and since then it has, I mean, it's changed the life of women. I've had women message me saying, I saw your story. I got sober because of you. I identified I'm a wine drinker. You know, I hear these stories about, you know, people shooting heroin or people, you know, overdosing on fentanyl or people drinking, you know, because the media portrays alcoholics and addicts as brown paper bags, you know, um, liquor in a brown paper bag, homeless. Like there's not a lot of people who went to a four-year college and were really good athletes and, and come from a good family and seem normal. I mean, I don't know, like I see normal, you know, all of those things. And so if I could show people that it's not scary to ask for help, and if I could show people that it's not the end of existence, because that's what I thought too. Once I stop drinking, I'm going to be no fun. What am I going to do? There's nothing, there's nothing out there. I mean, cause I drank to clean. I drank happy hour. I drank Bloody Marys. I drank like it was my life. And so if I give all this up, what happens? And what I realized was if I put down the rocks, I can start carrying flowers. And that was a huge turning point. So you're living life on life's terms. What are a couple, we can even get really micro here, um, habits, daily practices that you implement to live life on life's terms. So for me, being present is really important. I can really live in my head. And so, um, on a daily basis, I try to drop into my heart, right? So if I can do things that help me, that's really huge. And to be clear, I'm not perfect all the time, right? So like, 
on a really good day, which is 90% of the time, <laughs> you know, I wake up, um, I get up before my son, I have a couple, you know, a cup of coffee in the morning, I meditate for 20 minutes. Um, I work out right now. I'm loving Tracy Anderson. Do you know the Tracy Anderson method? No, it's no. like, I'm a swimmer. You're a swimmer. You know, I'm yeah. not coordinated and I look, I'm sure very ridiculous, but I love it. It's dancing and it's like movements that I don't do. It's not functional, you know, but it feels really good on my body and I love it. And so I love the class and I love Tracy Anderson. And I love, because also as a swimmer, as an athlete, I thought that working out had to look a certain way. I thought it had to be running. I had to take a spin class. I had to go swim. I had to lift weights. But what I found that I'm not going to do those things if I don't enjoy them. And so I found these different modalities that feel really good. I love Pilates, I love yoga. So some form of movement is huge. Cold shower. Love it. Love a cold minutes. shower. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. There's all this evidence, you know, it's that, that forced, you know, forced coldness is, I'm not saying this right, but like, you know, that that it's so good for you. Inflammation, it's good for toning the vagal nerve. It's good, like all this stuff, vagus nerve. So I do that. I meditate again in the evening, in the afternoon and try to get into bed before 10. So I get up around 5.30, go to bed at 10. So sleep is really huge. I do things like um, trace minerals in my water, you know, trying, I drink spring water, like all of those little micro things. Um, try to eat really clean and healthy, but I also love ice cream. And so I'm not going to, you know, deprive myself of the things that I love, especially as a six-year-old and we can walk to Jenny's. So we can like walk, you know, down the hill and get a Jenny's ice cream. And so, but I think the most important thing is just being present because, you know, living in the past or living in the future or, I mean, there's, this is debatable, right? There's not, it's not even reality. Like only the present moment is reality. Like the past is what we think about it. And the future is what we think it will be like where the present moment's the only thing we currently have. And so that's the one thing I try to do on a daily basis. And the other, the things like movement and um, meditation and do breath work, you know, not every day, but that's something that's been really important in my life. Um, doing those things help keep me in that present moment. Do you have a um, particular meditation practice that you would recommend or a meditation or guided meditation that you would recommend? So I did Ziva meditation, which is a Vedic meditation with Emily Fletcher. Um, and I love it because I used to do a lot of guided mindfulness or meditations um but i need my phone or i needed to have like certain things or and what i found what she te- what she taught was that um i don't need anything i meditate on planes like if i'm early to pick up my son from school i can sit in my car and meditate it's really helpful so it's mindfulness meditation and manifestation so she, so she packages it up really nicely um there, i used to do a lot of i love david g on insight timer so every once in a while I'll do yes. something like that but but for me too I found that there's a difference in mindfulness and meditation like mindfulness is being present where meditation is clearing out the trauma that's been stored and stuffed down so I like both of those but the meditation part is the one that I found is um has helped me like clear out and ground more than anything else love it I'll have to check it out those are such good recommendations my last question for you is the average age of my podcast listeners, like 22 to 24, if you could go back and talk to your early to mid 20, some something self, what would you tell her? You're good enough the way you are. You have everything inside of you. Trust your voice and trust the process. I was always trying to be something else or 
chasing something instead of just finding stillness and acceptance. And if I could go back and, and it all works out, it's okay. Ask for help. I know that's a lot. There's a lot. Um, you're not alone. You know, find your tribe and having a handful of friends who would do anything in the world for you and vice versa is so much more important than having a network of people who will just come in and out of your life without purpose or meaning. Those are my, oh, you're gonna make those are a couple. <laughs> all, all really, really good stuff. Thank you. So you have a couple cool things on the horizon. Can you go ahead and tell us about kind of what's coming up for you and, and maybe where the listeners can find you? So I live in Arlington, Virginia. And so a friend and I are going to start, we're going to launch women's circles um, in the DMV, which includes things. It's a 12 week like circle once a week, um, maybe once a month. We haven't totally ironed it out, but the idea is building it around um, like decreasing shame, having self-acceptance, self-love. And so around those circles, we're going to do things like community yoga, breath work, cacao ceremonies, and just allow um, like a hold of space for women to come to just support and love each other, you know, because sometimes, I mean, not all of my friends would go to a women's circle, but when I go to a women's circle, I know all of those women are there for the same purpose, you know, to, to heal and to evolve and to love. And so being able to hold space for those women to do so and create that community is really important. Um, so that's coming up in September. And then um, in August, I'm launching um, a holistic coaching practice and program um, initially. So at the beginning, it'll be one-on-one -on -one coaching with women, whether it's, you know, finding your purpose, finding your voice, going through a divorce, um, navigating addiction, what does life look like, which probably it's not relevant to your listeners, like after your kids leave the house, you know, but it's, it's, it's for all stages of life, because I think as women, we go through these seasons, you know, and we do hold space for a lot of people, whether it's our family or um, our boyfriend or our partner or our child or something like women are just natural nurture. In my opinion, women are just natural nurturers and space holders. And I think if we can create that space for women to, you know, to find their purpose too, and like love themselves and fill up their container, it's really important. So um, in the one-on-one -on -one coaching container, it's just more direct, um, like high touch healing. Um, and then eventually I'll start a, a um, probably towards the end of this year, um, like a group mastermind. So where we can kind of on digital online come together as a community, um, same thing, have those conversations, um, get curious, support each other, things like that. And then next year, I forgot to mention this, in 2024, I'm launching international retreats. So I'm looking at space in Costa Rica to hold um, space for like a yoga. It's a five-day, we're calling it like a five-day emotional detox. And so doing everything from breath work to yoga, acupuncture, functional medicine, um, self-development, all of that. So that's coming soon. And everything is on my website is hillaryphelps.com with one L Instagram. I kind of took a little hiatus from sharing on Instagram, but, um, and that's Hillary Phelps underscore. Well, thank you, Hillary, so much for joining me today, for sharing your story. You have inspired so many and you will continue to do so. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's such a good conversation.